Acts 4, verses 32 to 37. All the believers were one in heart and mind. No one claimed that any of their possessions was their own, but they shared everything they had. With great power, the apostles continued to testify to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus. And God's grace was so powerfully at work in them, all that there was no needy person among them. For from time to time, those who owned land or houses sold them, brought the money from the sales, and put it at the apostles' feet, and it was distributed to anyone who had need. Joseph, a Levite from Cyprus, whom the apostles called Barnabas, which means son of encouragement, sold a field he owned and brought the money and put it at the apostles' feet. Imagine that one day you receive a large inheritance from a long-lost uncle. What would you do with it? Your immediate answer can be quite telling. Yeah, sure, we know what we're supposed to say, that we want to give it all away. But often, we immediately think of the things that we could buy. It's almost as if money and possessions have a greater hold on us than we dare to admit. In the 16th century, the German priest Martin Luther described how people go through three different conversion experiences in their journey of faith in Jesus, their heads, their hearts, and their wallets. What he meant was that so often the way we use our money can be the most challenging aspect of our lives, and not just because we wish we had more of it. For the first followers of Jesus, they'd experienced such radical generosity from God that it totally changed how generous they were with each other. So much so that there was no needy person among them. Now that is radical generosity. Uh, looking at the early church, looking at the ways uh, we would love to see what went on back in the early church happen again today in the church here in the UK and across the world in 2020. We are going to be looking this morning, uh, as we continue looking at the early church, uh, about this whole area of generosity and giving and what it was that made the early church in their posture of generosity and giving stand out from maybe what had gone before or stand out from maybe maybe where we are at in today's culture in the Western society. Because as we look at the early church, we see time and time again throughout the book of Acts an incredible posture of radical generosity. And this was a posture of generosity. It wasn't always an act of generosity because for some people they might have not had anything to give. There was a posture of generosity which said, our heart is open to you, God. Everything we have is for you, God. And so there are radical and countless examples of abundant generosity. Even in the passage that we have just had read to us, it says that they were all in one heart and mind. They shared all of their possessions. There was no needy person among them. From time to time, they sold land, houses, possessions. And then goes on to say, Jesus, uh, Joseph, a Levite from Cyprus, who the apostle called Barnabas, which means sons of encouragement, sold a field he owned and brought the money and put it at the apostles' feet. I love that. 
those radical acts of generosity, of things that people did to say, we believe so much in the gospel message being taken to as many as possible. We are going to do these radical, abundant acts to make sure that happens. And I love that our first introduction to Barnabas in the book of Acts is in this way. Many of us who have gone on to read the whole of the book of Acts will know that Barnabas is one of the great missionaries. He went with Paul. He took the message of Jesus and the gospel to so many different places and nations and people groups. Yet our first introduction to him here, where he is called Barnabas, is because of the encouragement he gave to the apostles. As a Levite, he would have come from a wealthy background, so he probably had many lands, fields, things that he could sell. So he gave them that encouragement by saying, I'm going to sell this piece of land, and I'm going to give this money to you to do as you want with. What a radical gesture of generosity, and what an amazing introduction to someone who went on to go and share the gospel message in the way that he did. Now, last week, uh, for those of you that were here, Harry mentioned uh, how persecution grew in the early church. That as the gospel was shared, um, that as uh, people came and were added to the church daily in hundreds, that also at the same time persecution grew. And we're going to be looking at that a little bit later on in this series. And that is something that we kind of talked about last week. Maybe it's something that we go, yay, we want to see this happen again because we want to be so out there sharing our faith that we actually find persecution coming against us. And maybe in the same way, when we read about the early church and we read about this posture of generosity and giving, we might have a similar reaction. Because as the gospel was shared, as faith grew, as the church numbers were added to daily, so did that posture of generosity and giving, which we see continuing throughout the whole book of Acts. And actually, in our Western culture, that might be something which makes us slightly bristle. That even though persecution and money are on two completely different ends of the spectrum, they can be two things which make us react a little bit in a not particularly positive way. I know that for myself, if I'm being brutally honest, when Tim was uh, doing the kind of teaching series and he comes to each of us and says, right, this is the morning you're going to be doing, this is a topic you're going to be doing, when I was given the topic of money, there were probably other subjects I rather would have spoken on. And I had to really check myself about that. Why is that, Sarah? Why did you bristle about talking about the subject of money? Because so often in our culture, in the Western culture, it can be a really taboo subject. It's not something we talk about. It's one of the last great taboos of our culture. And a number of years ago, University College London did a survey of 15,000 men and women from many different cultural and class backgrounds throughout the UK. And they found that people were more than seven times likely to tell a stranger how many sexual partners they've had, whether they've had an affair, whether they've ever contracted a sexually transmitted disease, than they were to have a chat about their income and their finances. Which we might look at that and go, that's quite shocking. But actually, we probably all in some way can relate to that. Now, I promise we're not going to talk about either this morning. But, you know, both would make us feel a little bit bristly. I found out that the hard way. So, uh, as many of you might know, I work for Riverside Performing Arts. As part of Riverside Performing Arts, we support raise half our salary. So the way that we're paid is we go to people, we say, oh, would you get on board and join my support team and financially give to me on a monthly basis? Now, to do that, you have to tell everyone what your salary is. Because you have to say, I'm trying to raise this amount of money, which is 100 people giving me £10 a month, whatever it is. So people know what you earn. Alice is doing it at the moment. There are many other staff members doing it. But that's something that was kind of just part of my culture. I didn't care about telling people about my salary. So I was at a family gathering a little while back, and one of my relatives, a very close relative, who's not too dissimilar in age to me, happened to just in passing mention they'd just paid off their mortgage. 
So my first reaction was, wow, what's your salary? It must be massive. That relative didn't speak to me for two months because they were so offended that I'd asked that question because it was such a taboo subject of why would you ask someone what their salary is? Yet as we pick up the Bible, the topic of money and generosity and giving is talked about over 800 times. When we look at the Gospels, the first four books of the, Bible, of the New Testament in the Bible, Jesus talked about money the second most out of all the subjects he talked about. It wasn't a taboo subject. It was a subject that the Bible is very open about, that the early church is very open about. So why is it that in today's culture, we can bristle so much at speaking of generosity, giving, and money? And maybe it is, as we've already heard from John, that if we have too much, we have too little, whether we have good habits with our money, whether we have really destructive habits with our money, actually it's a commodity which so easily takes a really big hold on us and becomes something which stands so easily either rule or ruin our lives. Because so easily and so subconsciously, it could become something so central to the foundation of who we are and why we exist and what we're existing for. But when we look at the example of the early church, that posture of generosity was such a different one, as uh, that beautiful picture that John shared of the legs of the table being held up. Because there's a sense of freedom that we read about in the early church that is a bit different, maybe, to the culture that we find ourselves in today. You know, we easily can feel the pressure to have the most, to get the most, which so often leaves people spiralling into debt in the ways that John spoke about earlier today. Or for even of the, uh, some of us who are not spiralling to debt, we still have that pressure, but I want those great pair of trainers, I want the next house, I want the next car, I want the next thing, the best iPhone, whatever it might be. So how do we think about how we change our posture to actually reflect the posture of the early church? And probably, I reckon, the best starting point is actually to look at what the message that Jesus spoke about most was. So if money was the second most talked about subject by Jesus, the first most talked about subject by Jesus was the kingdom of God. Because Jesus, as God's son, came down to this earth to give each one of us a brand new identity. To say to each one of us, you are invited into my Father's kingdom as his children. That regardless of where you've come from, regardless of what you've done, regardless of what you're facing, what we've walked through, simply and utterly, I want to say to you, by coming down onto this earth as God's son in human form, I love you. You are accepted, you are forgiven, and there is no one who I don't invite into the kingdom of God. And that ultimately, we can know in the message that Jesus gave in talking about the kingdom of God, that this earth is not the place that ultimately we are called to. This is our temporary home where God has called us to do good and great things, but ultimately we have been called to eternity, to spend the rest of our lives in heaven, rejoicing with Jesus, knowing that we are called, chosen and accepted simply as a child of God. That as Jesus opened up his hands on the cross and died for each one of us because he said, I don't want you, all those times you've turned your back on God to be punished and not to be in relationship with him, so I will take that punishment for you. And then in rising again in his resurrection, he fulfilled that promise for every single one of us. And it's in the light of this truth and this brand new identity that each one of us has been given 
that we can explore the whole area of generosity and giving. Because we're not starting with us, we're not starting with how much do I have, how much should I give, we're starting with the fact that simply and utterly we are a son or a daughter of God who loves us so much. And tithing in the Old Testament under Mosaic law came out of a sense of duty. It was duty-bound. This was a law. This is what you gave. This is what, when you gave it. But with Jesus, there becomes a new freedom. That he came to fulfill the law that had already gone and happened. So he says that actually this isn't duty-bound. This posture of generosity isn't a you must, you must, you must. Actually, it completely changes the question that we ask. Because we no longer have to ask the question, how much God do you want from me? How much should I give to you when we think about giving? But we can use the statement to start, thank you God that you think I was worth giving so much for. And when we think about that as a starting statement, it changes our whole view on what it is that we would give and why we would give it. So when I bristle at Tim asking me to speak about the subject of money, or when it feels slightly uncomfortable, or when we don't want to hear another talk on it because we think simply, oh, the church just wants our money again, actually, maybe we need to say to ourselves, what is it that really has got my identity this morning? And it might be other subjects that make you bristle. There might be other things that you hear that make you go, oh, I don't want to hear that talk again. What is that thing which stops you from fully living in the freedom and the knowledge that simply and utterly your identity is found as a child of God? When I read the Bible, there are bits of it that I love have been included. I was looking, kind of flicking through the Old Testament. I was thinking about uh, characters like Noah and David. So for many of us, maybe quite well-known characters. So Noah called to build an ark when all around him were laughing and saying, God's not going to send a flood, look how hot it is. Noah faithfully was there building an ark, piled on all his people, piled on all the animals, and they were saved from the flood. David, one of the guys that had the most amazing promises spoken over him by God, did incredible things, was an incredible king, won countless victories. Amazing. We could have read just the positives and the inspirational bits of those two characters and many other characters in the Old Testament. They didn't need to include the bits where they messed up because we would never have known. But by God's grace, he does include the bits where they messed up. So for Noah, after the ark had happened and we were back on dry land and everything was going really well and brilliantly again, we read of times where he got really drunk, where he had big fallings out with his family. For David... When he again was living in a time of prosperity, things were going well, he had great wealth, he was king. It was the moment then that he committed adultery with his friend's wife, and then to cover that up, sent his friend off to be killed. By God's grace, I really believe those bits of the Bible were included. Because we can say, do you know what, we're not always going to get this right. We're not always going to be people who don't mess up. We're not always going to be people who are living fully and utterly knowing my identity is just as a child of God. But in Deuteronomy 6, 11 to 12, which is a great reminder as we think about characters like Noah and David, it says, When you eat and are satisfied, be careful that you do not forget the Lord who brought you out of Egypt. You're an acknowledgement to say, it's really hard not to sometimes let other things take control. For Noah, for David, when they're in times of prosperity, in times of it going well, in times of great wealth, Actually, that can be some of the times where it's really hard to know that posture of generosity and that posture of saying, God, this is all for you. 
Maybe in the times as John spoke about, when financially things aren't going well and they're spiraling out of control, that we don't know then as well. God, you are in control. This is all yours. And I can put myself back with my identity of you firmly at the center. Um, if oh, I've got a clicker, me not realizing that I've got technology. Here we go. So I love this picture. This is from a legend, if you've ever heard of it, called the Templar Knights. Now, legend has it that these guys were uh, off on the crusade, and just before they went off on the crusade to fight as part of the army, they all got baptized. But as they were baptized and as they went under the water, they were fully immersed, but they would hold their sword aloft. So every part of them would go under and they would keep their sword out of the water. And in keeping their sword out of the water, they were saying, God, I give myself fully to you, but not my sword. Because the acts that I do in the name of this sword, I will do. They will not be done in your name. And what a great picture for us today in 2020 in Western culture of saying, what are the things that actually I do hold out of the water? That I say, God, I want to fully give myself to you. I want to run this race for you. I want to see again and again and again what happened in the early church. And we will sing the songs and we will pray the prayers and we will say, God, do it again. But this little bit, oh, I'm just not quite sure if I'm going to give it to you. Whether that's finances, whether that's relationships, whatever it is, what is that thing that we do hold out of the water in the same way that the knights did? I was really challenged by this uh, last year. I went to see a lady from our church and many of you have been involved in helping support. So over the last couple of years, we've been helping her support her and her kids during what's been a really difficult time in her life. And lots of people have gone around and put up furniture and um, done painting, and she has been absolutely abundantly blessed by every single person who has done that and has felt a real sense of love and family. But I went to see her uh, last year, and I knocked on the door, and um, she opened the door, and this huge dog just ran at me and enveloped me with kisses and licks. And as I was peeling the dog off me, I just said to her, why have you got a dog? What have you got a dog for? You're struggling to feed your children, and now you've got a dog. This is really, really, really unwise. And so I was there on my high horse, giving all of my wonderful advice about why she didn't have a dog. And she said, Sarah, can I just stop you? Can I tell you about the story about how I got a dog? At which point I realized we should all listen more than we should talk. So we sat down and she told me the story that um, the previous week she had been downstairs in her lounge and she'd looked out to the house opposite her. She lives on uh, quite an underprivileged estate. A lot of the houses around her are boarded up um, and are empty, but the house opposite her wasn't. She said she looked out uh, one morning and the police were there, removing the lady who lived there and her children from that house and taking them to a safe house because the place they were now in was dangerous and they couldn't stay there and they had to be immediately taken. She said the kids were in tears, the mum was in tears because they realised and they were told, you cannot take your dog to the safe house. So the dog was going to be taken to a home to be rehoused. And she simply said to me, Sarah, why would I have not taken that dog? She said that family were in the midst of everything being taken away from them, but they will not stay in that safe house forever. She knew that was her background, she had done that journey. She said, one day they will get out of that safe house and I want them to go into their home with their dog because he is part of their family and they need to know that something is stable and is going to keep going in their life in the way that it is now. And she said to me, do you know what? It might mean that I have to be a bit more careful in the way that I feed my kids. It might mean I have to think a little bit more about the meals I cook, but actually that's the sacrifice I'm going to make for this family. And it really, really struck me. Because my first reaction was so self-focused of, but you, but you, but you. Her first reaction was, but them. 
And she was willing to make the financial sacrifice of working meal plans out a little bit more to make sure that she could house that dog and keep that dog. It was a beautiful picture of a posture of generosity. Uh, in the 24-7 um, little um, prayer app that I listen to daily, they said uh, last week or a couple of weeks ago, one of the phrases they used that really struck, stuck with me was, are you leading an interruptible life? And I thought, what a great phrase when it comes to generosity and a posture of generosity. Are we living a life that we are willing to let be interrupted by God to grow his kingdom, to support others, to love others? Would I have taken in someone else's dog? I don't know that I would have done. So it was a massive challenge for me, and it really struck me in a beautiful way. There's a quote from Richard Foster that says, as we understand more of what Jesus has done for us, the understanding of God's ownership of everything changes the question we ask in giving. Rather than how much of my money should I give to God, we learn to ask how much of God's money should I keep for myself. The difference between these two questions is of monumental proportions. What a brilliant question to ask and what a brilliant way of looking at it. Not what should I give, but actually, what of God's money do I need to keep for myself? Because as John reminded us, actually everything we own is God's. We are simply stewards of the things that God has given to us in whatever way and whatever thing or whatever relationship that might be. You know, the beauty in the passage that we read earlier from Acts, that there was no needy person among them. You know, this was a culture and a time that had so little compared to what we have now. But yet, there was no needy person among them. That their posture was one of generosity in many, many different ways. That they gave, they looked out for one another. And we don't know what that looks like. You know, there are examples here where it says, from time to time, people did radical, abundant acts of generosity where they sold houses. It doesn't say everybody sold everything they had. It doesn't say everybody who owned a house sold their house. It says from time to time. So there were obviously other acts of generosity going on as well. We read later in the book of Acts about the character of Lydia. Lydia, a wealthy merchant who sold purple cloth, who when she meets some of the apostles, says, come, my house is yours. Come and start having your church in my house. And so people started meeting in her house. She probably had a big house because she would have been a wealthy merchant. And so her posture of generosity was to say, this is my house, but now it can be yours. She didn't sell it, but she opened it. Another act of radical generosity in a posture of generosity. People probably shed food, shed time, shed relationships, shared all the things which made people feel loved and valued and accepted and included at all times. I love the example where it says in the book of Acts that they gave to the church in Jerusalem simply because they had a need. And you have to remember that this is the daughter church, the church that has been sent out by the church in Jerusalem, who now look back and say the church that sent us are now in need. So we're not going to keep this for ourselves. We're going to give this to them and we're going to help them grow in their sharing of the gospel and in their sharing of faith. And how amazing as well on the other side that the church in Jerusalem didn't go, well, we can't possibly receive it because you're the daughter church and we sent you out and we planted you so we can't possibly receive back from you. They said, of course we'll receive from you. Of course we will. We will take what you want to give to us because we want to see this message grow. 
And what a brilliant just culture of giving and receiving. It might even be for you here this morning that you are at a point where you're saying, I just need to receive. And I hope our prayer would be that we would, as church, would have a posture of generosity, would say, we see you and we see your need and we want to support you and we want to come alongside you. There's another uh, quote that Richard Foster says a little bit later on in his book, Money, Sex and Power, which says, giving frees us to care. It produces an air of expectancy as we anticipate what God will lead us to give. It makes life with God an adventure of discovery. And what adventure could you go on this morning? What's the adventure that God is calling you to? Is it giving? Is it saying, actually, I want to have that posture of generosity and I know I've held on to things I shouldn't. And actually this morning I want to say, yes, I'm just going to give it. And I'm going to trust that God in your grace, you are going to use it to build your kingdom. Maybe it's time. Maybe it's saying, actually, I want to serve. I want to get involved in ways I haven't before. Because I know that my posture of generosity has been a little bit off kilter in that area. Now, we've got a wonderful team at the back, Julian and Fiona, who would love to meet with people this morning to look at your giving, whether that's just to simply say, yep, great, keep on going what I'm giving, whether it's to start giving, whether it's just to say, I'd love to start serving or to start supporting people, meeting, going visiting people, going to just chat to the team afterwards. They would love to meet with you and they'll take any kind of notes they need and pass it on to the relevant members of the site pastor team here this morning. I just wanted to end with a, a story, something that happened in our family life uh, a couple of months ago. It's got nothing to do with giving, but it's a beautiful picture of giving and a posture of generosity. So we went to have lunch with some friends who have a child who has very complex disabilities. Um, their child was lying on the floor after lunch, having some time out of his wheelchair, and the rest of the kids, our kids and their kids, were playing on the switch and having all sorts of excitement. And then one of our little girls just went and simply sat down next to the child who was lying on the floor, and she just put out her hand and he held her hand. It was a simple moment. No one thought much of it. It was just a moment that happened in the time that we are at our friend's house. That evening, as I was putting my little girl to bed, she brought it up and she said, Mummy, he held my hand. And I was like, well, yeah, of course he held your hand. And we had a chat and it came out that she, uh, she's got eczema and she has particularly bad eczema on her hands at the moment, or at the time. And she was saying that she has been getting quite badly bullied at school because of the eczema on her hands and the boys were calling her all sorts of names, like, you know, she's an old lady. And no one wanted to hold her hand when they got into pairs. No one would, they'd always keep their hands down by her side. So for her in that moment, it was huge because a boy had held her hand so tightly and hadn't let go. And as I was reflecting on that after I put it to bed, I thought, how beautiful. Because in that moment, our friend's little boy didn't do that purposefully. He didn't think, oh, I'm going to hold this little girl's hand because she's got bad eczema, and that's going to make her feel really good about himself. For him, cognitively, he held her hand because it was instinctive. She put her hand out. Why would he not hold it? And why would he let go? For him, that was simply that, here's someone's hand next to mine. Why would I not hold it? And I just thought, what a beautiful example when we look at the early church of just an instinctive behavior which actually changes somebody's life. Because in the early church, why would they not pray? In the early church, why would they not give? In the early church, why would they not speak of their faith over and over again? Because for many of them, they'd seen Jesus. For many of the apostles, they had walked with him. And why would those instinctive patterns of behavior be anything other than they were? And that would be my prayer for each one of us this morning. 
that whether it's generosity in giving, whether it's our relationships and the things that we do with our time, whether it's our serving, that we would have that instinctive nature that would say, why would I not do this? Because of what Jesus has done for me. That as he opened his hands on the cross for every single one of us, why would I not open my hands freely to him and say, this is all yours. I'm a steward of the things you've given me. You take them and lead me on the greatest adventure that I will have ever been on.